Hi, welcome back to Excited, episode 82. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. So we have a lot to discuss, and we are very, very excited today to discuss it with um, someone who's been on the podcast before in secondhand and thirdhand forms, because basically everything we say is informed by discussions with her. We have Katya, the managing editor of Pension Plan Puppets. Katya, how are you doing? I am great. How are you guys? Yeah, I, I, I can't complain. The Leafs won last night, which is uh, always a good place to be. And we're in the um, interesting position of this is our first podcast since the Leafs coaching change. So there is a ton, uh, just absolutely a ton to discuss, both about Keith, about Babcock, about how the coverage of the team is kind of changing and the narratives that are forming. But um, I think a good place to start, as it often is, is how have the last couple of games gone? So we have a nice kind of point of demarcation where we can talk about how the Leafs have been under uh, Keefe with the Arizona and the Colorado games. Uh, both of them wins. Both of them wins where by the 5v5 numbers, the Leafs outplayed their competition, which is always good to see and a, a welcome change from this year. So let's start there. Katya, how do you feel the last couple games have gone? And does that tell you anything about the type of system and of, that Keefe is trying to implement? Well, well, I'll start at the end. Does it tell us anything? Maybe. Um, what we've seen is massive offensive pace at a level that nobody better assume is sustainable because the, uh, the, the Corsi 4 for 60 for those two games was, in, was over 70 in both games, and, and n- nobody's doing that over the course of a season um, uh, unless... Sheldon Keefe has reinvented hockey, which I don't think he actually has. So, so that was good. Uh, the driving play overall was also excellent, although that wasn't new. The, the Leafs have been doing that all along. Uh, what was different is they maintained their, their shot quality advantage in both of those games, even in the truly, madly, deeply bad third period last night. So that brings me to they gave it all away damn near in that third period last night but more worrying they came very close in both games to giving all that away in the special teams because by the time you switch to all situations and look at expected goals for and against they're very close they put themselves in one goal game territory by taking a lot of penalties having a terrible pk and we don't know what the power play is so there's no point in even talking about it uh, but the first five minutes of last night, the last 15 minutes of last night, were not good. <laughs> so that's the part that that kind of concerns me. But that shot quality advantage is, you know, very, very, very good and was very exciting to see. And that's what made it fun. So that's my thoughts on those two games. Fulman, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I'd agree with that primarily. I mean, one, they're obviously getting more dangerous chances. They seem like they're pressing harder in terms of the defense is pinching, getting closer to the net, uh, holding the zone more, getting those more persistent offensive chances. And also, and this is probably the biggest takeaway, is John Tavares looks like he's alive again. You know, he was kind of a shell of himself for large sections of this year, even though he was still getting a decent number of points. By his lofty standards, he just did not look like himself. And while Mikhaev and Hyman, as two wingers on his line, are probably not ideal, obviously you want to put Mitch Marner back there when you get the chance, I think that he looks 
better. He looks reinvigorated to me anyway. It looks like a more active line. And John Tavares looks a little bit more like John capital D Tavares than what we were getting up till now. So I, that's yeah. probably the best takeaway for me. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I mean, with with that line with Mikhaev and Hyman, it feels like one too many worker bees and one too few artists, you know, to to borrow a soccer term, I suppose. Um, and I think, Katya, you raised the point in our, in our Slack that it's not necessarily Tavares who's get, who got the best chances on that no. line, especially in the Arizona game. No, and 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 my and a little bit last night as well. My concern about that is what we're seeing really, and I hate to use this term, is total hockey. <laughs> and and the and the the downside of this is where basically all five players are whizzing around and in the offensive zone and doing you know fabulous things. Is that John Tavares now has four shitty wingers instead of two? <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Well, that punctures my balloon a little bit, I have to admit. But, um, no, but I, I think it makes yeah. sense. I mean, the thing, Zach Hyman's always been like a kind of shot a shot monster. Or not a shot monster, but he gets really good chances, and he takes more of them than you would expect because he's just always around the net and just always like flailing his pool noodle of a stick <laughs> at, at the puck. And, you know, most of the times it just <laughs> hits the goalie's yeah. pad. Um, he lives at point blank. Exactly. That's like his existence. But I, I'm just looking this up now. In yesterday's game, um, the Leafs with at 5-on-5, five five, the Leafs that had the three most individual expected goals was that line, Hyman, Mikheyev, and, Tav- and Tavares. Um, and Hyman had 0.65 individual expected goals, which is quite a bit. He must have had a couple really big rebound chances. And then Mikheyev and Tavares both had 0.28. Right? So ideally, you would, you would want Tavares taking more of that. And to a degree, I think that would be fixed when Mitch Marner... Uh, comes back because he is a sublime passer, right? The uh, getting them get uh, that line just getting decent shots is a notable step up from where they have been for most of this year, where they were getting shots but they were not necessarily good ones. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but how many? But how many? Uh, how many shots was Justin Hall taking when he was on the ice with John Tavares? Yeah, that that's Hall is a bit. He's he's a bit shot happy. Um, which can be good or bad, depending on the on the situation. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about point shots um, with respect to the Leafs this year because they've been relatively, as a proportion of their overall shot profile, more point shot heavy this year than in years past. And it's not as if the Leafs were completely averse to point shots in previous years, particularly from the left side. But um, Katya, you actually wrote a really nice article about this yesterday or maybe the day before, uh, where you kind of expanded upon... The idea of like defenseman shooting would would you be able to kind of like quickly summarize what you're able to find when you looked at the Leafs in that respect this season? Okay, so that was that was basically focusing on the the uh, Arizona game, mm-hmm. and and what what we started with was the baseline of the Leafs this season is who was doing who amongst the defensemen were doing a lot of shooting, and that's uh, Barry, Riley, Muzzin, and therein lies an issue is that it's not just Barry who was shooting a lot and a lot from the points it was his regular partner Jake Muzzin as well Um, so in looking at the Arizona game where there were a lot more defenseman shots than 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 there was in the Colorado game and also where they came early in the game which you can't really do as well but but at one point I think it was midway through the second period the defensemen were accounting for half of the shots on goal 
And and that was presented on TV as if that was wonderful and a brand new innovation of Sheldon Keith. And it's like, no, it's not. <laughs> None of the above. So basically what I looked at was was what proportion of, of the actual Corsi 4 that each each player was uh, responsible for individually and then what proportion of the expected goals each player was responsible for individually. So what you ended up with was you had defensemen Jake Muzzin in particular, who was responsible for a particularly high percentage of, of the Corsi 4 in that game, although less than, than his norm even, and yet his proportion of the expected goals was minuscule, effectively zero. All of the defensemen in that Arizona game had effectively meaningless shooting, and yet they all shot a lot. So that's an area where it was flooded out in that game by a mass volume of shooting and a lot of good forward shots and a lot of good forward shots near the net. But if you get yourself into a game where you're playing uh, someone not the Arizona Coyotes and you can't get to the net and the defensemen start shooting again, we're right back where we were two weeks ago. And that's a bit of a concern. How dare you disrespect Alpha Brain John Chaka like that? <laughs> Oh, John Chaka. Yeah. He tries. But yeah, his heart's no, in the right that, place. His brain is somewhere else. His brain but... is on. His brain is very alpha. <laughs> it's I too alpha say, for us. I yeah, still so. say that the guy should be a a, a, a day trader. I think that's <laughs> what. It, I think that's what it, how his mind works. He he Tiny went to uh, margins. He went to business school at Laurier or not Laurier, um, Western. I want to say so. Yeah, maybe, he maybe, went to yeah, Ivy. Yeah, maybe arbitrage. that was the original plan. All the way, arbitrage. Yeah. Um, um, so actually, Fuleman, this is something you've kind of remarked on a lot, where mm-hmm. you tend to thumb your nose a little bit at these high shot volume defensemen, right? And it yeah. kind of goes to the point that Katya was making, right? Where, where you're kind of cannibalizing offense. You're, you're taking a lot of shots, but they're not efficient shots. Mm-hmm. I did. I, I mean, and this was a crude way to look at it. Like, you really ought to be looking at the expected goals here, but the simple example that I like to take is over the last five years among defensemen who have scored 20 goals over that whole period, the best shooter is Shea Weber in terms of how many of his shots on goal go in. And it's about eight and a half percent. If he were a forward, that would rank him about 200th in the league over the same period. He would be tied tied with Dale Weiss. And obviously that's simplistic, but I like it as an illustration of just how much worse it is to have the average defenseman shot than the average forward shot. Now, the best argument for what we did against Arizona would be if those defenseman shots are leading to those flood of good forward shots, if they're the beginning of something and not just one-and-dones, plays that basically end after that and exit the zone again. It is a little hard for me to accept probably how much Jake Muzzin shoots. I think we're all predisposed to like him because he's the defenseman that plays defense and we have exactly one of those right now. But he does gun a lot and we have moved from a defense that, while it's shot, um, didn't shoot nearly as much as this as a proportion of its total shots, it feels like. It feels like the Leafs have really become point shot heavier And if those point shots are starting something, if they're generating rebounds, if they're slap passes, what have you, uh, that's maybe more forgivable. But I do kind of share Katya's concern, which is if we're just 
you know, peppering the goalie's pads and making everybody look like peak Tim Thomas. That's not what we want. That's not ideal. And we still have a lot of gunners back there. In fact, if we have like a revitalized Tyson Berry, uh, he may, you know, really have the green light to shoot even more or to shoot to, you know, the maximum extent possible. So yeah. That is something to keep an eye on. Yeah. And I, the Leafs last year as well, I, I've seen some of the manual tracking illustrate this where they were, um, they, they used low to highs quite a bit. And low to highs are often considered a relatively uh, inefficient form of in-zone movement um, because you're moving the puck from a potentially more dangerous area to a potentially less dangerous area. And often the way you get it back down low into dangerous areas is by these point shots, which, uh, as we've discussed, don't necess- can lead to stuff but don't often, or might not always, rather. Um, now, people criticized the Leafs system last year for, for this as well. I remember I got in a... Um, a discussion with Sean Tierney on Twitter about this. And, and he said, you know, I, I don't like how the Leafs kind of, how, how they attack in the offensive zone. It's too much low to high. And, and I pointed out, well, the net results are phenomenal, right? On aggregate, they're still getting a ton of offense. And my theory, and unfortunately it's just a theory because we don't have the hard data to back this up, is that they had either defensemen who were particularly good at getting those uh, point shots or slap passes or what have you on net, and creating scrambles, or they had forwards who were particularly adept at creating high tips out of those shots and generating rebounds and pouncing on those rebounds. Certainly when you have someone like Zach Hyman or John Tavares, those guys, you know, live in the crease, right? And before them, so did James Andrews Dyke. So it doesn't preclude having a strong offense, but I'm interested to think about, interested to see how the Leafs are generating kind of the shot quality advantage that Katya mentioned off the top. Um, right now because to my eye in in the last couple games and I didn't see all of the Arizona game the high-end shots we got were not necessarily started from point shot sequences they were started from from other sequences right they weren't necessarily started from like extreme cycles either a lot of it was um, having having a cycle turning the puck over and then pressuring the turnover and creating a uh, an offensive zone uh, turnover with the defending team trying to exit their own zone some of it was just kind of luck. You know, you're not going to get two breakaways every game either. So, Kati, do you have any ideas on how the Leafs generated the kind of high-value shots that they were able to generate these last couple games? Well, somewhat. um, First of all, let's not discount the fact that an awful lot of that was just mass volume. That's a a huge number of shots just overall. Um, I think... There is a there's some speed issues. This is this is the eye test, and as I like to say, your eyes can't count. But it sure looks to me like they are getting in the zone, in more of a phalanx, more of a three across rather than like I never once saw William Nylander scoot across his zone and then doodle around in the right circle, going, "What do I do <laughs> with the puck?" That never happened. So it seems to be partly speed, partly positional. So they're getting, they're getting in the zone. They're getting into good positions. Uh, Jason Spezza, in his comments to, uh, I think it was TSN, where he was basically just giving out the new talking points, talked about how they've been told that the forwards need to get in position to receive passes, which is like on page one of the coaching manual and yet didn't seem to be happening. So 
I'm very inclined, and this is just how I see the game, I see the game more as patterns than actions. That, that it's positional, but also speed. And that's good, but it's, uh, I don't know. I, I worry a little bit that there's a lot of um, multiple passing, a lot of east-west passing offensively, a lot of bing, 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 and then a guy shoots. And I think, I keep imagining, like, what if Mark Stone was out there? What if Brad Marchand was out there? What would they do with this Leafs offense? And I think they'd pick it off and they'd be gone. So, I, you know, the low to high had a function, and that function was to get the puck behind the defenders when the players themselves couldn't do it. So there's good and bad in both in both sides. But, but that's what I think. I think it, it, it's mostly speed and positional play that is getting them the success they're getting right now. Yeah, I... On the tactic side, one thing I noticed, and this actually led to the Matthews goal against Colorado, is that a Leafs forward, or often multiple Leafs forward, would kind of pop out high in the zone, and kind of the the very, very high slot, like basically the middle of the blue line, um, to provide the defenseman with a bit more of like a another safety valve, where they could pass the puck to if a defender was closing in on them, instead of having to either dump the puck in or fire a shot through traffic. And... I like the idea. I think one thing that Keith is preaching, and it certainly seems to be, this is certainly one of the talking points, as, as you coined them, uh, is, is he's really emphasizing puck possession. And we see that with how he's talked about um, the team having to kind of get used to the idea of we're going to try and you know keep possession even on changes where possible. And making those decisions is going to be the hard part. Right? And that's the tough part about being a hockey player in general is making tough decisions fast. Um, but yeah, we saw that in the offensive zone. And it, it's had some success. I'm not entirely in love with it because I feel it often, it replaces a point shot with um, a point shot from the middle of the ice, which is, you know, not a ton better. But it does give you more options and you can continue the cycle from there. Uh, Foodman, have you noticed any particular sequences or any kind of ideas or patterns uh, that have caught your eye in the last two games? Definitely uh, the thing that you just remarked on in terms of cycling back on a change rather than just dumping it in and then going for a change. Uh, that has been really pronounced to me, and it's one of the things that kind of jumped out at me a lot. I think, and I think we've all kind of roll our eyes a bit at this internally. Uh, the very first game against Arizona, where Keefe took over, I think Greg Millen wanted to credit Sheldon Keefe with, like, skating and hockey as a sport like everything was treated as if it was like totally foreign to the Leafs it's pretty impressive that Sheldon Keefe managed to figure out indoor plumbing so we can get <laughs> ice indoors that's yeah. amazing he's an innovator yeah I, I mean Katja's line was like wow hockey with sticks <laughs> who would have thought of that um and, and yeah and you know I thought most of that got silly the thing about maintaining possession during a change and you concede it might be a bit of a partial change you're requiring a player at the end of a shift to do more work. It's, you know, it's not zero risk. There are trade-offs in every decision he's making, even if it's a good one. But that immediately jumped out at me. I remember distinctly Zach Hyman doing it. And I immediately thought, previously, Zach Hyman just dumps that puck and goes for a change. And I think that that is coached. Yeah. and Well, the first time, the first time someone turns the puck over trying to do that and we have zero players back, it's going yeah. to be a thing. Right, cause, and that's yeah. going to happen, right? And and it's interesting because I see a lot of parallels to kind of the tactics 
Keefe is, is using and, and almost what you see in soccer where building up back going backwards to go forwards is you know a very very common thing right it's, it's part of the game um and there's times where you know you try and play out from the back slowly you try and recover and you make a, a turnover there and turnovers in your defensive zone are awful right i, I made this um I, I referenced this soccer coach jürgen klopp who has a, a famous saying which is the best playmaker in the world is a offensive zone turnover or an offensive third turnover, right? If you can create a turnover when the other team is just starting to transition the puck, they're out of position. You have a ton of opportunities. So the next time we try that and it doesn't work, it's going to blow up and it's not going to look great. And Keith's going to look kind of silly. And I imagine he'll, he seems like a guy who is committed to a particular philosophy. So I don't imagine that will dissuade him, but that's something that's going to happen. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention, Kati, you, you mentioned the Leafs' schedule has kind of helped them, right? They faced Arizona, who were not amazing, and then Colorado without Landeskog and Rantanen. So a one-line team without two-thirds of that top line. Um, oh, they're at least a one-and-a-half-line team. Yes, Kadri no, helps think. them a lot in that regard. And <laughs> yeah. Kale McCarr is, is dope. He's really good. Um, but one of the nice things that's happening now is the Leafs kind of have a, a pretty soft schedule coming up. So their next games are... On Wednesday, Red Wings, Sabres, Sabres, Flyers, Avs, and then Blues. So until the Blues, that's a lot of teams who, you know, are not phenomenal. Um, going up against the Flyers will be interesting because, you know, you mentioned Mark Stone and Brad Marchand. Sean Couturier is just as good as those guys, uh, mm-hmm. especially at 5v5 defense. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But over the next three games, you know, it's, you're going up against Casey Middling stats. <laughs> you like that too much. It, it's uh, it's you know it's too kind to him nowadays. He's like, he, we have to change his name to Casey. Pretty awful stats soon. It, it's really not oh, doing well for him. The poor guy. Listen, oh. can I back up and regroup and 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 restart the offense a little bit here? Because what you were saying about about that tactic reminded me of something Kevin said about the Sioux Greyhounds and specifically about Rasmus Sandin. Uh, he he commented, I think this was back during the, the World Juniors last year, that that Sandine has this thing, which is somewhat scary, where he will back up into the defensive zone with the puck and he will pass it up towards the bench where the change is taking place. And that's how they do their, their puck possession on a change and that that's a Sioux thing. So if that's a Sioux thing, then in some sense, however much you can work the bugs out of a system with a bunch of teenagers, uh, Keith's already done that. And he's got a defenseman who could play in the NHL this year again, who really knows how to do that. So we'll see. We'll see if that if that is an okay risk-reward risk proposal for the NHL or not, you know. Anyway, I just wanted to back that up. But yes, the schedule is very, very kind. Uh, Keith gets to learn to be an NHL coach on the road. He doesn't have to face the zoo probably until the first Buffalo game when everybody will chug down the QEW to go to that game. The first home game will be incredible, so he's avoided that. He's got some easy teams. I don't think the Flyers are an easy team anymore. So we'll see. That's and But then there's... Uh, there's uh, Carolina right before Christmas. Oh, that'll that'll be fun. Yeah. So Carolina um, terrifies me. Always. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're 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 a good team. Um, I want to. There's two things that I want to touch upon. And Kathy, you talked about one of them. Um, 
off the off the top, which was the least penalty kill. So this is a source of much frustration under Mike Babcock. Um, early returns are not promising. That you know, Keith hasn't turned us into. Um, I don't know, pick a great penalty killing team. He, he hasn't turned us into any of them, uh, at least as of yet. Um, ha- have you noticed anything in particular on the penalty kill, or is it kind of more of the same? Well, aside from the fact that I really hate it, um, <laughs> okay, here's the thing about PK. I actually find watching PK, uh, um, I'm better at it than watching the power play itself, which is odd. Um, so to back up a little bit again, last year the Leafs PK seemed very bad if you looked at success percentage which one should never do um the goaltending on the pk last year was terrible i i think like if you look at goaltending in a meaningful way like start looking at expected goals and actual goals allowed i think frederick anderson was particularly bad on the pk last year we could be seeing that again um i think pk is more than a small percentage goaltending. Um, the the aggressive let's roar that down the ice thing seems to have vanished in a puff of smoke. And you can't just blame that on Marner's injury because he's not the only one who can do that. Uh, Frederick Gauthier is on the ice in the PK and I would like that to stop. I, he's not a quick thinker. He was excellent in the AHL at PK. He is non-excellent at PK in the NHL. Uh, I don't like Morgan Riley on the PK. I never have. I don't get it. I don't. I just don't get what he's doing there. Um, is this some sort of attempt to give him uh, a status number of minutes on ice because he's not really 100% physically and he can't play enough five-on-five five because Babcock was doing it too? I think it's dumb. Uh, I actually really like Cody Cece on the PK. I think he really, I think, I think that's his element, you know. Yes, I will sacrifice my body, and 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 the positional like movement is not super complicated, and he's fast enough and agile enough that he can do it. So I'm fine with him doing like playing the whole Ron Hainsium, playing the whole two minutes, <laughs> and then and then but put those put put Mikheyev back out there, put put Hyman and Kapanen, the fast guys, get them out there. Because we actually do now um, have a little, there was at one of the most recent stats conferences, there was a paper uh, given by, I, I always get people's names wrong, so sorry in advance, but I think her name is Megan Hall. And she talked about uh, whether or not there's a relationship between the, the PKers running off offensively and then subsequent shots against. And she's saying, no, there isn't. Because this has always been my concern. Does the aggressive PK cause you to actually end up worse off overall? And if there's evidence that it doesn't, then good. Keep doing it. And we don't seem to be doing it. We seem to be standing in a four-man box, not moving, whipping heads around, going, oh, what do I do now? To be fair, that basically describes the Leafs at 5v5 in the defensive zone. (laughs) (laughs) It does, Uh, yes. (laughs) So those are my thoughts on the PK, but I like it, it, it's got that's on Anderson most of the time anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a trite saying, but you do need your goalie to be your best PK. Or uh, Fulman, do you have anything, any kind of observations you wanted to point out? I mostly want to underline, highlight, and then put shining lights around that point about Morgan Riley. Uh, <laughs> Morgan Riley, look, I love him. We all love him. He seems like a terrific guy. I would have been totally happy with him being the captain. 
all that great stuff. He's a bad defensive defenseman. He is a worse defensive defenseman when he's suffering from possible mystery injury, although I can't do more than note that that could be going on. But I think that there's been a bit of an idea of because he's our guy, he's our closest thing to a number one defenseman, we'll kind of put him in there and we'll make him into one because of his obvious physical gifts. He'll figure it out. I don't know if we can really wait on that very much longer. I had a conversation last night, and this is sort of a related concept, with someone on Twitter. I noted Matthews did kind of a half-assed crappy clear at the end, and someone said, well, he never gets on in those five versus six situations. And I'm like, well, he doesn't because for all his many gifts, he's a bad player in his own zone. And they said, well, how do you get better if you don't play them? I think that there's maybe some sort of educational chicken and egg thing going on there. Like, how much are you willing to let apparently good, gifted players figure this stuff out? I, I'm not super convinced of it with Matthews. With Riley, I'm like, okay, it probably is not happening. You know, he's not 20 anymore. And that's fine. We can accept him for what he is. But I think having him on the penalty kill is an experiment that needs to end now. Yeah, uh, I, I wanted to discuss Riley because, you know, I, I think a lot of the Leafs have played quite well over the past two games. Um, and at 5v5, Riley and CC have very much not. And, you know, the CC part of that equation, we know what he is. He's, he's just simply not that good, right? And it's, okay, that's fine. He's He was the price of getting off his stuff. He's here for this year and probably no longer. Oh, God, I hope no longer. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Riley, we, we married the guy, right? So any changes in his form are hugely, hugely important, not just for the future of the team this year, but beyond that, right? So, like, Fulman, have you noticed... Anything in particular about Riley this year that would explain his struggles? Or is it just he's really sucking for some reason? It's really tempting to read in an injury. You know, we had those missed practices that he was taking for a while, uh, a few weeks back, where he just wasn't participating. I assume that was something physical, but I could be wrong. The biggest thing is that Morgan Riley is so physically gifted like the standout play for him is always going to be he did what looked like the biggest vertical leap i've ever seen someone do in skates on one play to hold the puck in his own like he just bounced off the floor it was like he was gonna dunk you know there are so few players who have his agility and his ability to get himself out of problems that are sometimes of his own making with his uh, just overall skill, you know, and he's very good at walking the line, all that sort of stuff. This year, it feels to me like a little bit has been shaved off the top of all of those physical skills. And because he's so reliant on them, he looks a lot worse. I don't know. I mean, the Cody CC thing, the pairing for a long stretch put up passable numbers. And so, you know, it's true. Your eyes can't count. It's a valid saying. My eyes hate it. My eyes bleed when I see that pairing. <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to separate. Am I just big mistaking Cody CC to death or whatever? But Morgan Riley, I really think, doesn't look like himself. And I think that probably Sheldon Keefe's one of his big priorities is going to be, how do you fix Morgan Riley? And that's probably been true of Mike Babcock before him. And... 
the issue is ongoing to some extent and worsened. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, Kati, you, you've been, I wouldn't say a harsh critic of Riley. I think you've been very realistic about Riley, including one that's been, you know, somewhat unpopular uh, to be. Have you noticed anything in particular this season? Well, he's doing dumb things in the offensive zone. And since when does he do that? Mm -hmm. Like that, like there's been a few, like there was, I think that was a power play where all of a sudden he had the puck and he was roaring around and behind the net and then like nothing. And it was like, my God, what are you doing? So my, I, I had, this is, this is not a cheery thought. I shall warn you all in advance. I'm seeing a lot of, of, and it's natural because of who the Leafs played last night. I'm seeing a lot of parallels between Keith coming into this team and Jared Bednar coming into the Colorado Avalanche. And if we cast our minds back to when um, Patrick Waugh quit and Bednar came in off of their AHL team, although he had a very long minor league head coaching career uh, prior to that, he, he came in and the team got worse. And one and 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 he started banging his head against some very familiar walls in terms of roster construction because the problems that Patrick Waugh couldn't solve didn't magically go away because there was a less differently brained person behind the net is the politest way I can describe Patrick Waugh um, so Keith's got that problem too he's got challenges one of those being Riley and the thing that worries me is I don't want Morgan Riley to end up playing the Matt Duchesne role on this team as it moves through to the future. Because Matt Duchesne was never a bad player. And, and, and you know, then all that drama happened because he was the most frustrated and disincentivized player playing under a good coach that I've ever seen. And I don't want that to happen to Riley. So I think, well, I think... Keith's priority should be John Tavares, John Tavares, John Tavares, with a big side order of Mitch Marner, and way down the list is how happy Tyson Berry is. Then comes some defensive execution issues, but in there, I really do think Morgan Riley has to have a role that uses his strengths, and going out on the ice in a shutdown role with Cody Cece ain't that. So I'm willing to say I was wrong. I said at the beginning of the season it would absolutely be stupid and crazy and not so to play to play Riley with Barry as as the you know the ultimate glass cannon pairing and I am now saying give that a whirl and put them behind the forwards in the offensive zone and see what happens and put Muzzin with somebody who is not going to shoot and there's really only one guy and that's Cody Cece. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> well, it, it's funny yeah. you mentioned that usage because uh, Cody Cece has been, in the two games under Keefe, the most used defenseman. He has. Right? But and, that's PK. Yeah, yes, but even even at 5v5, um, I believe he led the team in, in time on ice. And that's not unexpected. That's essentially how... He's using Riley Cece as the top pair, essentially how Babcock did. And he's using Barry Dermott as the third pair. Right, and he did, he did last night, yes, and and not only that, I don't know if I'm sure Twitter's in an up, uproar about this, but he benched <laughs> Spezza for Engvall l- late in the third, and he also benched Barry and and Dermot, and they didn't play the last several minutes, so I'm sure there's been a deep outrage over that. 
Yes, I mean we can, we, can, <clears throat> we we can talk about the uh, the fan reactions and the media coverage of of uh, the two coaches uh, in some time as well. There's there's a ton to get into on on that front. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned you know low on the priority list is is, is Tyson Berry's you know empowerment, so to speak. And <laughs> I got to be honest, I I get super super annoyed at people going Babcock wasn't treating Tyson Berry fairly. It's like oh my god. By basically any quantifiable measure, Barry was not being misused at 5-on-5. Five five. He played with the Leafs' best defensive defenseman in Jake Musson, the Leafs' only defensive defenseman in Jake Musson. He played more than you would expect based on um, their respective you know, individual time on ice. He played more than you would expect with the Matthews line, the Leafs' one line that is just a free, hey, live in the offensive zone for this shift group. He did not play a particularly tough competition. He was not saddled with a ton of uh, really tough usage. He was playing a role that he was expected to be able to do well in. And he just simply wasn't playing very well. And, you know, he has to own that to some degree. Uh, Now, it has become somewhat clear that the team as a whole was, or at least appeared to be hampered by Babcock this season. Um, the change we've seen from Babcock to Keith has been to the eyes, at least, at least to my eyes, rather enormous and larger than I was expecting. Um, while I think we've all kind of discussed this internally, that the idea that Babcock neuters offense is frankly laughable when you look at his track record over many years. Over this year, there might actually be some truth to it. Um, Fulman, do you have anything to add or do you want to back me up in my rant about how you know, we shouldn't leave Tyson Berry alone. Yeah, this is going to be... A month ago, you remarked that Babcock had reached the look at him eating crackers like he owns the place thing, where everything he did was objectionable, every problem was his fault. That is going to get worse if Sheldon Keefe continues to lead this team to better results. And I think it's going to get really hard really quickly to discern what Mike Babcock actually did and what was actually going on there. The most I think you could say on the Tyson Berry thing is that the defensemen look to be empowered to pinch more under Sheldon Keefe, which is interesting because they did that under Babcock in previous years, and they seem to me to be moving away from it this year. I That was one of the things that did seem a little more conservative to me. At the same if time, that's, sorry, yep, I'm just, sorry. Um, yep. we did also, there were also some times where, you know, you'd, you'd look up and like Cody CC would be behind the net and you're like, wait, how did that happen? Like yes. while Babcock was in charge. So I, I certainly don't buy the idea that, you know, Babcock empowered Cody CC to be like, yeah, go pinch. And then Tyson Murray's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, Tyson, you stay back on the blue line. We don't want you pinching. <laughs> Right, I think, Only I think one man is not allowed to pinch on this team, and in some reason it's Tyson Berry. Yeah, I don't think that's terribly <laughs> likely, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm just saying it's going to be tough to puzzle out some of this stuff. Some mm-hmm. of this is just uh, human psychology, I think, to some extent. I think Mike Babcock had given all of his speeches. I think that his voice maybe got tired and grating to a lot of people. I think the team maybe just wasn't into it to the extent that they ought to be. And to some extent, it's like, well, look, you're a professional athlete. You are responsible for your own level of engagement to a large extent. And that's true. But I think that the hiring of Sheldon Keefe 
as much as anything is permission to turn a corner psychologically for a lot of this team. And all of these quotes, which have been shady towards Mike Babcock or have seemed to be, I think they're also just a reflection of this is a really great opportunity to throw out a bunch of results in your own mind. And statistically, that's dumb. Psychologically, when you're the player, that can be helpful. I think that this is a process of just saying, okay, sure, I sucked for large sections of October and November, but there was something else going on there and I don't have to worry about that anymore. Now I'm not failing. Now I'm not a bad player. Now I'm succeeding. And so it's going to be hard to separate out how much of this is just feeling free, of being tactically empowered, and how much of this is just uh, ding dong, the witch is dead. So, you know, we'll see. Katya, what did you make of the the quotes that have been kind of bandied about? Um, just to provide some, some context for any listeners who haven't seen them, and I'll be paraphrasing them to some extent here because I don't have them in front of me, but Barry said something to the effect of, you know, we're playing more free. It's an exciting time to be a Leaf now. Um, Matthews has pointed out, you know, we want he wants us to use, the, the term he Matthews used was our God-given talents. And the implication there is, you know, he Keith wants us to do X, brackets, and Babcock did not. Right? So do you have any thoughts on, I guess, those sorts of reactions from the players, Katya? I I do. I, I you know, some of them, your listeners are too young to hear. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a tone to it that strikes me personally as an individual as just a little bit too much of the uh you know that old guy wouldn't wouldn't let me play video games until i finished my homework and now i can just like do whatever i like which is not actually a good thing to be doing as an elite level hockey player I, I, and yet all they're doing is expressing their emotional state. I don't think they really mean that, but it 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 gets my back up a little bit because all that stuff about uh, working harder every day to be better and putting and meeting the challenges and all that stuff that's actually true, even if it takes away your creative fun in the offensive zone, and and. I'm somewhat concerned about how much they believe in this. I'm just going to go out there and be creative stuff because their creativity can go to hell in a handbasket really fast. And, and they are like the, the quality of the, of, of the shots they allowed against the abs was appalling. Absolutely appalling. Especially, especially towards the end. Yeah. Yes. If they had their, their, like, they're they're two big blonde boys out there with uh, with uh, Nate McKinnon. I don't know if the Leafs could have won that game. And and like I I hesitate to see these to 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 link offense and defense in in more strongly than I think they are. But I don't think Babcock was completely out to lunch in looking at this team minus. Jake Gardner minus Nazan Kadri and saying we have a play driving problem, we have a defense problem, and it's a reasonable thing to do to cut down on the turnovers. 
Now, what he chose to do really clearly didn't work. And the, re the response to then fix that was really very slow and, and ineffective. But I'm not 100% sure that, that now everything's fun again, yippee, 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 is exactly the recipe for success either. And the thing that makes me concerned about that is that the Marleys have been outshot pretty much constantly for this entire season while they've been winning heaps of games and most of last year. And they are, on terms of roster strength, one of the best teams in the AHL. And they get away with it by using either the power play or their goalies or just their shooting talent uh, gap over the other teams. And the NHL is not the AHL. So, you know, be happy. I, I want them all to be happy from the, from the point of view of having a team that, that, that feels incentivized to really play hard and, and all that kind of stuff. Like, whatever. I don't, like, build a pyramid in the basement of Scotiabank Arena and go back to pyramid power. I don't care. Whatever works. Yeah, no, I, I think I think all of that makes a lot of sense. And as Fulman alluded to, it's going to be harder to have honest conversations about what Mike Babcock did and didn't. Um, we've already seen the Game 7 uh, against Boston has been memed to the point that I think people legitimately think that Austin Matthews played 15 minutes in that game. And he, <laughs> and he didn't see the ice in the third period, and he was benched. And, you know, the reality of what happened in that game is Matthews played um, a decent amount, quite a bit, despite having a really poor game. The fourth line didn't see the ice in the third period. Frederick Gauthier, in the third period of that game, took, I believe, either two or three shifts. One of them came I think in the... they were all face-off shifts. And one of them was immediately after a Leafs power play. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, the Leafs, their, their top three guys are tired. Well, I mean, top two, because Kadri got himself suspended, of course. But, um, you know, that, that game has been memed to the point where it's like, yeah, you know, Austin Matthews didn't show up despite having an amazing series and being so good in that game. It's like, well, he was kind of ass in that game, and he actually did play a decent amount. The fourth line was not overused. It was, you know, when you look at the shift charts, the a lot of the narrative breaks down. And that's not to say you know, he, Babcock couldn't have found a shift or two for him earlier in the game, but, you know, people often are not honest about the criticisms um, of Babcock, and that's frustrating, at least from my perspective, because I want to push back on that at the same time, as you mentioned. The result, you know, the results this year were what they were. The Leafs were unambiguously under Babcock this season, not a particularly good team. In fact, they were rather poor, right? And they, the defense wasn't good, and the offense was worse than we expected. And you know, part of the problem was that the Leafs lost their special teams edge, which meant that they had no buffer for not outplaying the opponent at five v five. Right? There were games last year where the Leafs power play would get them through it. Right, and even though their penalty kill wasn't great last year, the Leafs' power play was was so good, especially in early parts of the season, that they could just power through those those particular games. We don't have that anymore, and you know, time time will tell if the Leafs' new system under Keith actually results in the, what we've seen so far. Right, I, I think it's good to be optimistic. At the same time, you know, plenty of teams have two good games, including the Leafs. The Leafs' first seven games this season actually were, were quite good, right? So, you know, you have to be 
careful about that. Um, Fulman, do you want to jump in here? And I guess, do you have any particular thoughts on, I guess we're talking about a bit about the narratives now, but do you have any, any particular thoughts on, on that, about the, the comments that um, the players made and how people are treating what Babcock has done? Yeah, the biggest thing I think, and I'll own, I was slow to be critical of Babcock. I, think I we still both think, yeah, I think he's been criticized too much and too unfairly. And there was a contingent of the fan base that wanted to make him the author of every problem this team had. And because there was such an avalanche of people who were willing to criticize him for anything, for every single press conference thing where he didn't shine Nylander's shoes, for every single goal against where they were like, oh, well, if only he'd been playing Matthews as if Matthews is good at goals against. You know, there was such a swarm of criticism of him that was at least partly kind of bullshit. I was probably too slow to pick out the elements of the criticism that were legitimate. I do also think, as you were saying, this team was different this year and this team was worse this year and he was not able to fix it. And bottom line, that's sufficient grounds for termination for a coach. And that's fine. But I do think that we're going to swing from a period of Babcock is everything bad to a period of Keefe is everything good. And that will also be kind of dumb, even if I think it was time to move on from Babcock. And I think, you know, Keefe has an argument for being the guy who replaces him. I'm not surprised. Certainly as soon as Babcock was going, I thought, okay, the next full-time coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs will be Sheldon Keefe because Kyle Dubas has hired him repeatedly. And so I do, I, I hope we can try and strike some sort of balance there where we recognize, look, Mike Babcock, one, had not gotten this team to perform uh, this season, and two, probably did piss some people off to a large extent. It's hard to screen out how much of that was him telling guys whose careers were over the truth and sort of bringing it home to them. And how much of that was just, he's a big personality who believes in himself. And if you don't agree with such people, they get really, really annoying. But there's also going to be an element of, okay, he did some things well. This team right now under Keefe doesn't look to me like an entirely new animal. They look to me like the Leafs of a year ago. Yeah. Like they're uh, a super, as Ketchin noted, unsustainably high event team. But they were a high event team then. Their defensive execution was ass and so it still is so there's going to be a real desire to make a hard break in history right around the start of this week and to say everything is different now and that's understandable from a fan perspective because the team before this was bad and we want to believe they'll be good but these are still the same players and Mike Babcock did not make them entirely what they were for good and for ill so that's something that I think is my big takeaway. Yeah, the results, as as we've noted, they've been good. But you know, Katya brought up this point when we were talking off air. We're just all waiting for like more games so we can actually have some more, some less qualified opinions of it's early, but right. Like I mean, the Leafs have looked good, but it's two games against two weak rosters, right? I, I'm not. I'm not. You know, buying uh, a parade ticket just yet. <laughs> yeah. 
So oh, yeah, I've booked I mean, the hotel in Toronto already. I mean, come on. <laughs> um, I, we have some smart commenters at at PPP, and they've said a few things about these games that that are are kind of a nice little reality check. Um, somebody said last night reminded them an awful lot of Ron Wilson's Fire Wagon Hockey, mm. and that's a scary <laughs> statement. Uh, somebody else said, when do we start asking why the Leafs keep blowing leads? Which is another scary statement, and and I do see a little more of the 17-18 leaps in this team than last year's, in the last couple of games, and and it, it it's fine to back up and regroup, but we don't want to back up that far. Mm. And 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 I think there's I think there's some genuine reason for concern, and I'm going to go back to Jason Spetz's comments and and. When he said to in that interview that um, we're going to be spending some time in our own end, but we'll be keeping the shots to the outside, it's like, oh, God, <laughs> no. <laughs> and yet, I think they are, because their, their offensive system is so wild right now that they're going to get they're going to get they're going to give away rush chances against that are going to be really painful. So yes, and definitely. We, we, we saw that yeah. yesterday, right? Where I mean, it, it's certainly helped by the fact that, you know, Nathan McKinnon's a one-man rush chance cuz he's, you know, faster in game than pretty much everyone besides Connor McDavid. Um so, you know, we there'd be like a pretty innocuous turnover see or innocuous seeming turnover when he just like rush up the ice and suddenly it's like a two-on-one somehow and again, you know, for for all the nice things that we it looks like Keith has done early on and for all for how nice the results have looked early, he's not getting a leopard to change their spots. The Leafs still don't have very many good defensive players, right? And, and we saw that very clearly last night, and it was especially clear that like yeah, we still don't have players who are like really good at just cutting off people in the neutral zone, right? And you you can mm-hmm. only system that so much. Yes, yes, it, 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 the. The, this would be a topic for like a three-hour discussion maybe, but the, but the concept that people have in their minds that offense is innate skill given by the gods and defense can be taught, I don't buy. Yep, I, I agree with that. I, I, I mentioned that I think like a couple a couple pods ago. It's like I think, I think defense is a skill. I don't think you can try, just try harder and you become Pavel Datsuk. <laughs> no. Right? Like I mean, and, and, like, and people oversimplify that because the truth is, Defense is certainly effort matters. It's a lot about effort. You get a long way with effort on defense. You have to try your damnedest, but you have to read plays. You have to perceive what is happening really quickly and react really intelligently. Uh, Cody Cece, the reason he's not the defensive defenseman that all those people we like to make fun of thought he might be is because he doesn't read those plays that quickly. I don't think it's not that he you know, doesn't want to be uh, a star defensive defenseman. I'm sure he wants it very much. I think he's being the best Cody CC he can Cody BB. But <laughs> he's not a good player in terms of making those decisions in a timely fashion. How, how long and... were you waiting to bust that one out? <laughs> you thought of this at like 15 minutes in? You're just you wrote it down. <laughs> Note to self, Cody BB, banger line. Um, yeah, but he's, you know, he is what he is. And so I think... The thought that's occurred to me more than once about Austin Matthews and Austin Matthews 
can be a little frustrating because you think this guy has everything he needs to be no questions asked the best player in the world who isn't Connor McDavid and not that far below Connor McDavid. That obviously that's the loftiest of goals, but you know, his shot is so good. His offensive capabilities are so good. He's big. He's strong on the puck. He's good at takeaways. He has so many things going for him. And yet in the defensive zone for four years now, he hasn't really been all that effective. And you know, uh, I know a certain class of people would say, hey, Mike Babcock didn't teach him that. I guess not. I don't know if anyone can. I don't know if it's just the defensive side of the game doesn't come to him as naturally as the offensive side of the game. But I don't think that that's impossible. It's hard. It's different. And it's a discrete skill. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. You watch Matthews take away pucks in the offense zone. And again, this is an eye test thing. So I could be wrong here. But when he loses the puck in the offensive zone, it's like he's personally offended. It's like, that. wait. Oh, uh, no, that's absolutely true. That's what I see, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, wait, no, that, that's that's my puck. Don't take my puck. That's my puck. I'm going to get my puck back. <laughs> right? And then he just takes it back. And that that was actually the sequence that led to his first goal. Um, so I think the Tavares line got the puck in the offensive zone and then changed. Um, Matthews came in and or Colorado had a kind of sloppy transition out. Matthews and Nylander kept the puck in. They cycled for a bit. Matthews lost the puck. Then he gained it back with like a really nice poke check or a really nice uh, stick lift. And then the cycle that led to his goal actually began. It was a, it was like a two-part sequence, right? And it goes back to the point I was making about creating, um, forcing turnovers when the other team is trying to transition and how that can be particularly valuable offensively. But you watch him do that and it's like, okay, just do that, but like 150 feet to the left. Mm-hmm. Right, and you wonder like why he can't be better at that. Now, saying that his shot results and his um, even defensively, his numbers this year have been pretty good. So maybe he's getting better. Although, I would say that his improvement there has a lot to do with one William Nylander, and two, him being better at the non-defensive zone parts of defending. Right, and this is a this is where we have to be kind of precise with our language about what we mean by defending, right? I know, Katya, that's something you've remarked on a fair bit. Yes. Uh, playing without the puck in the neutral zone is not the same thing as defending in the defensive zone, but they're both defending. Right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, you got to split them out, and that can be tough to do. And I think also, um, with, you know, the numbers revolution such as it is, there's still a tendency to think of defense as first it was Corsi against, and now it's expected goals against. And I think, you know, that's helpful. That can certainly help us check our conclusions on this sort of thing. But a lot of analysis of defense sort of is one side saying, here are some numbers, and one side saying, oh man, remember that one play that he missed? And it's hard to get good analysis of defense, you know? It's hard for any of us, I think. But, yeah, I, I do have some trouble sometimes separating who's good where and screening out what my overall opinion of the defensive impact is, for sure. Yeah, it's very it's very tricky. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I, in particular that we wanted to uh, touch on today. Because if not, we could actually just transition into, including Katya in our favorite segment, Bad Takes. <laughs> oh, let's do that. Yeah. So, 
All right. All right. Um, Katya, do you have a bad take you want to talk about off the top? And if, if not, Fullman and I can, can go ahead and give you some time to think. Well, I mean, <laughs> we were talking about the narratives and the rewriting of history and yes. how, how people are grasping with both hands and holding to their heart a very truthy version of the past. And one of those things that is going to drive me bananas is Austin Matthews' ice time. Austin Matthews has been the most used forward on this team all season long to an extreme when John Tavares was out that was not sustainable to to a continuing extreme now that I think we have to ask some very serious questions about when did we decide we wanted to go back to 1990 and play one forward line 25 minutes a night it's dumb they play too hard too fast you need short shifts which Greg Millen explained Keith invented <laughs> and, he, and, and rolling four lines true he story uh before, before keith the smallest increment of time was actually 30 seconds he he <laughs> he, was. he suggested splitting it up into individual seconds exactly exactly so the uh, the leafs rolled four lines and then he wrote and then he went with his horses later on when when he stopped rolling four lines so that was millen's millen is the ultimate bad take on this on this whole situation but but yeah i mean short shifts and you do have to cap ice time for your top players because they will get to a point where they're no longer effective. You just enjoy looking at them more. That doesn't mean playing them more. It's tactically sound. So there's my sort of tepid roasting of that commonplace bad take. You guys are better at this. Go, go rip somebody. All right, Foodman, <laughs> you wanna, you have anything in mind? Uh, you know what? I was actually going to go a little bit on Greg Millen. Uh, go ahead. It feels a little up. fish. Yeah, it feels a little fish in a barrel, frankly, with Greg <laughs> Millen sometimes. Um, look, you know what? I think that he was so eager. And in fairness, this is to some extent his job. And so I can only brag on him so hard for that. But he basically seemed to say, like, every ship was like, okay, the Leafs are doing this now. And there were some things that seemed different to me, too. I was like, oh, yeah. But it got comical the degree to which Sheldon Keefe was supposed to have changed the entire team in 24 hours. Even if you think Sheldon Keefe is remodeling the whole franchise in his image, he probably needs a little bit more time to do it. Like he didn't, you know, he came in and had like one morning skate and he was like, oh, by the way, I'm rewriting the entire game of hockey. Figure that out by lunch. We'll be good to go by dinner. You know, that seemed to me a little bit aggressive. And I think it's kind of emblematic of what is definitely about to happen. And I can't stop it in terms of the whole narrative around the Keefe Leafs. To be clear, I kind of hope we're in a situation where that happens because it will mean that we've won a bunch, which would be the clearest delineation from us losing a bunch. But it's going to lead to just some absolutely bananas analysis. And Mike Babcock, who is like a consistently dominant possession coach, say what you will about him is going to be thrown into the Randy Carlisle bin of coaches uh, in the eyes of a lot of people. And again, I don't think I can avoid that. So I just want to note now and going forward that I will think it will get done. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like a preemptive bad take. <laughs> like, yeah. we, we know the bad takes you're about to have, right? It's like me watching a train come that I know is going to run me over and there's nothing I can do about it. So I'm just complaining now. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think I think that that's honestly quite fair I, mine mine is, is is pretty similar it's just the one thing i 
that bugs me about bad takes. I don't mind bad takes that are wrong. Okay, that's a lie. I do mind them, but I find them less <laughs> I find them less objectionable than bad takes that are kind of just in bad faith, right? And this mm-hmm. is why misuse of stats really annoys me when people have arbitrary endpoints, when people say stupid stuff like the Leafs in 2019, the calendar year, have been X. It's like, well, why do I care about the calendar year? Why is January 1st, 2019 more important to me? Then December 23rd, 2018. The team has changed over the offseason. Why do I care at all about calendar year stats? It's the silliest thing in the world. Those are frustrating to me because they are built to mislead, right? They are like intellectually dishonest. And what I think is going to happen now is that, yeah, it's going to be hard to have honest discussions about what Babcock did well and what Babcock did poorly. Um at Maple Leafs Hot Stove, I believe Al Brownscombe had a, a piece in the wake of the Babcock firing that illustrated this nicely, where he said, look, you can criticize what Babcock has done this year. He's done enough to get fired, but you don't have to make stuff up about previous years. So the one that I keep coming back to is the Babcock New Year's offense thing, because it's just, you have to believe just a fucking wild set of things to believe that's true, you know, over over the course of his entire career. So it's like, don't use a bad argument when you have actual useful strong arguments um and yeah that's that's the main bad take that i wanted to i guess discuss here um is there anything else you guys wanted to touch on before before we headed out well i've run my string so yeah sorry we, we, we should try and end on some sort of positive note i guess like like uh which I am generally positive about. Oh yes, yes. About yes, the future of absolutely. the team, I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of concerns. But, but um, it is extremely nice to have the game be fun. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and to see some scoring chances. Yeah. So more of that, and and and, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know? we, we... <laughs> score some goals. That's yeah. I, I like goals. They're fun. Goals I are really them. good. Um. Yeah. No. I. I the last two games have been. Encouraging. I, I don't think there's any way you can spin them in a way that they're not encouraging. Um, I think naturally on this podcast, we tend to be pretty cautious about declaring big changes. Um, but yeah, it, it's. I'm certainly more optimistic about the Leafs now than I was seven days ago, where we were. Seven days ago, we were discussing uh, the that awful showing in Pittsburgh that like literally everyone on that team should still be embarrassed about, frankly. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm embarrassed that I watched it. I'm embarrassed that I was adjacent to that performance. That was awful. <laughs> yeah, it's it, that was miserable. But, you know, we, we've played well. Um, one, oh, the thing I wanted to remark on, um, the fourth line usage, actually. So this year, oh, yeah. um, as, as many of you know, the Leafs have been using their fourth line with this absurdly comical defensive zone usage. And in Arizona, they actually maintained that usage. In Colorado, they went away from it. The fourth line... Um, I believe didn't get a single, like, face-off shift. All their shifts were on the fly. Do you remember if that's true, Katya? I remember you pointed it out to us after uh, the first or second. I pointed it out at a certain point in the game. I didn't check to see if that was true for the whole rest of the game, but yeah. then the fourth line didn't get a shift yes. after that uh, yeah. so, Leafs power play in the third. So, hey. Yeah, so it's true or true enough to not make a significant difference regardless. So, yeah, that is going to be something to monitor. Um, it is really interesting to see uh, that sort of usage. We had kind of assumed that this was a directive from above Mike Babcock, or at least I did, because 
he had never used his fourth line in that extreme a way before. So, I mean, I, I guess we'll see. The results of that were, were really, really poor. And I, I mean, hated in, it. Yeah. And oh, in yeah. general, um, you know, the 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 three-week stretch where Freddie Gauthier was, like, amusingly competent and, and therefore a fun mm. story has, has <laughs> slowly faded. I, you know what? We had fun. We all shared a laugh. Freddie Gauthier remains Freddie Gauthier. For a while there, I was like, oh, he's like super Freddie Gauthier now. And now he's just back down to Freddie Gauthier. And that's okay. But we should probably stop now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Katya, you've, uh, you've had an interesting, you know, pass with Freddie Gauthier in terms of, you know, your, your thoughts on him, both watching him kind of rise up through the Marty's and, and for the Leaf. So how, how have you um, well, seen his progression? Well, actually, Gauthier is a really fascinating anomaly because he is, in my opinion, the best argument against Sheldon Keefe as the development master. But, I mean, Keefe's got lots of lots of really good development stories. Gautier doesn't matter. Gautier got better in the NHL. And he's he, he's about the only guy who did. And, and, and I find that fascinating. He was so unassertive. He was so, so passive on the Marlies. And, he, and, and his biggest change in playing in the NHL is that he got mildly assertive, especially in the offensive zone, which he had never, ever done before. Um, my take on this fourth line, though, is not that that was a directive from above, necessarily. I'm, I'm actually confused about this. What were those particular people doing on this team and staying on this team, and why were there no call-ups made to cycle anybody different into the fourth line. Because what I think Babcock was doing was taking a group of personnel who had almost zero skills and making them do the one and only thing they could do over and over and over again, which was take face-offs in the defensive zone. I don't think that was necessarily a bad way to use those players. So the prob problem wasn't the way he was using the players. It was the players he had. So whose bright idea was it to make the Leafs' fourth line, Timoshov, Gautier, and Shore. Uh, and, and if that's Dubas, then Dubas, Kyle, sweetheart, get over your waiver phobia. Because I think that might be what's the root of it. The other aspect to that that I find a little questionable is you just went out and you signed all these guys for like league minimum contracts on the idea, on some kind of promise to them, that they had the potential to get a job on the Leafs. And then you've never called any of them up. Guys like Auberg and Augustino and those types, right? And yeah, and who are yeah. who have been like Pierre Engvall, woohoo, leads the team in points, uh, conveniently omitting the fact that he's tied with with Auberg and and Augustino, and they've been extremely good. And you've got to say, why aren't they on the team? Why aren't they at least being tried out? Maybe they will be. Maybe that was Babcock who wanted those guys, and, and, and he was fighting with Dubas over this. But it seems really funny to me that that was the roster that was provided with this basically this nullification field as a fourth line. I, I don't criticize Keefe at all for essentially benching them last night, because what the hell good are they? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, yeah. and granted, uh, Engvall had a great pass to Shore for the first goal. Um, and I, you know... Nick Shore has had this reputation for like years as this this nerd superstar, um, mm -hmm. and 
I, I'd watched him a little bit, but like, let's be clear, he was a fourth liner on the Kings. Those guys don't get much attention, even from nerds like us. You know, well, when I we, could when we have watch been games. a fourth liner on the Kings in those days and had good Corsi. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, he it's he hasn't really been incredibly impressive, and I guess the biggest issue is just giving those guys a ton of defensive zone starts that none of them have the skill to like break out the puck against NHL competition. So they'd get the puck, and then nothing would happen right and then they'd spend 35 more seconds in their defensive zone and you know the idea behind that to your point guy like the idea behind that is sort of well they, they can't do much else but they're probably not much worse than say austin matthews if once you are in your own zone but then the thing with austin matthews and you know having him play with neander and Janssen is when they get the puck after you know 45 seconds of running around with their dick in their hands um they can do something with it they can, they can get out of the zone and they can build something. But, like, that Gauthier, Shore, Timoshov line um, very much did not. And, and Timoshov has been... So, it's one of those things where when you see a below-replacement-level NHL player play and they're forwards, most of the time it does not scream out at you, oh, wow, this guy should clearly not be in the NHL unless they're, like, a Colton Orr-level player. Mm-hmm. But like Timoshov, you look at him and just like he just doesn't do enough positive. I don't think he is really an NHL player. No, I don't think he does anything. And like honestly, speaking of Pontus Aberg, like what's the difference between Timoshov and Aberg? Well, there are lots of stylistic differences, but the difference in how they're talked about or not talked about is Timoshov is twenty three and Aberg is twenty six, and like people believe Timoshov can be something more. Maybe I don't really know on what basis you would say so though because i you know i do find it tough to evaluate a fourth line that was used in that manner around let's you know freddie goche but i haven't seen anything from him maybe there was no one who was like sub top six level who could have shown anything in that situation i don't know but i'm curious as to what people are seeing if it's not just well he's younger in the case of Timoshov. Yeah, I mean, it's possible he could survive in, like, a top-nine role. He could be maybe the third the third banana on a decent third line. But when we put Kapanen and Janssen there, even if the point totals didn't come, just visually, you could see that they were impacting the game. And that's an, a bit of an unfair mm-hmm. comparison because both of those guys, I think, are above-average NHL players. Right? So, yeah. you know, but even, even someone like Nick Patan, who I think is, you know, kind of a fringy guy, although, in my view, someone who is more on the side of an in-the-lineup NHL player than a press-box guy. Nick Patan has done more in his fourth-line minutes than, than Timoshov did. Right? So, yeah, that's... Everybody, everybody in the <laughs> NHL has probably done more than Timoshov did. Yes. That, that, that one hockey viz chart that, that uh, has a deployment... Oh, like and, the leverage? The one, yeah, and the one corner is... I, I forget... It, does it say why are you here? Yes, yeah. I think it might. <laughs> it says, well, why are you here? Why are you here, corner? Mm, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm actually putting I'm putting that that chart up uh, now, and yeah, in the why are you even here, corner, you have uh, Shore, Timoshov and Spetser are a little further away, and then on the defenseman side, you have Martin Rinson, and then maybe this will be uh, a surprise to some people. You have Travis Dermott. In that Travis zone as well. Dermott, yes. mm. Travis Dermott has been quietly grotesque 
for most of this season. Yes. So Although actually, now I think he's progressed to just dull. Yeah, I actually did want to. I I know it looked like we were like wrapping up 15 minutes ago, but I, I do I want to take advantage <laughs> of having you here. Surprise um, bonus podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, because there's been a lot of talk about, and to be clear, Fulman and I have said this as well, where the Leafs should have experimented a bit more with Travis Dermott higher up in the lineup, simply because what we had there was we knew we had what we had with, for example, Riley CC, Riley Hainsey, with Zaitsev, whatever. Dermot, maybe he won't do a ton there, but maybe he will and he'll surprise you and you might get something out of it. Um, but he has never been used there. Uh, granted, he's only had one coach in Babcock and this is now his second. But in the first two games under uh, under Keith, he is, you know, not. it's not looking like he's about to jump up in the lineup. No, and, and like Keith should know him. Yes. And he was, he, he was not stunningly exciting to watch in the AHL. Travis Dermott. He was the kind of guy who would get himself backed into the corner in the defensive zone and he would panic past the, well, he would basically center the puck in front of his own net. He did that a lot. And, and I'm, sh- I'm sure Sheldon Keefe recalls that as well as I do. He doesn't do that in the NHL. He's actually the other good example of, of, of against Keefe as a development coach because he got better in the NHL too. Um, I think Babcock was working his way up to last season to using Dermot more. He was very early on doing the I'm going to sneak the guy in instead of instead of Hainsey kind of deal or instead of Zaitsev because uh, he, he could pop uh, Dermot over onto the right side. And then that stopped because of injury and when he came back and was apparently reasonably healthy, it never started up again. So maybe he'd come to the conclusion that that was his ceiling. He banged into it and, and, and let's leave him below it. Maybe that is his ceiling. Uh, I don't know, but he's, he's been uh, extremely, I will take him every night of the week ahead of Justin Hall though, because he doesn't take dumb penalties (laughs) and he is actually a lot quicker in the brain defensively than Hall is. So that's my thoughts on that. But no, the, this is this is part of this is Keith's big dilemma here with this defensive core. Some of them just aren't very good. Yeah. And and I don't just mean Cody Cece. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I think like I don't even care about Cody Cece. He's a net like zero to me. He he neither makes them better nor worse. But some of those guys, if you play them up the lineup, that's probably a bad idea. And, and when you're saying that, I think you're saying that about too many of them. I think they actually need to make a trade for a defenseman. But then the question is, what, what do you, with what cap space and what, what do you trade, right? So, yeah, I mean, um... it can't, it, I'm not saying an exciting trade for a defenseman. <laughs> <laughs> By no means. I, I, I mean a relatively dull trade for a defenseman who can maybe execute with a little more uh, authority in his own zone. Um, yeah. But, so but, you're saying definitely get Colin Miller, right? No, I'm saying <laughs> I, I really am. I really am. I, uh, Trevor Van Riemsdyk. Oh, he's another left-sided guy, though, right? So, but mm-hmm. then again, I mean, can we be picky? Yeah, I'd, no, <laughs> we cannot. I don't. First of all, I don't think that matters on the third pair. Yeah, also um, valid as much. But but and I am I'm 100% on board. The the defenseman should play on the on the right side. You know if at all possible. 
Um, I Babcock did not invent that. Um, <laughs> I heard Sheldon Keith did back in 1975. <laughs> <laughs> if it works, if it works, then Sheldon Keith thought it up. Mm. Yeah. Um, but no, I like. It, there's a problem there, and 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 Dermot is part of that problem. And and maybe he'll just like settle in and improve. But right now, I don't see any signs of it. Yeah, and then you know the the hope is, the great hope for Leafs fans has always been you know well hopefully Dermot becomes a top four guy and is able to stem the loss of the expected loss of Jake Gardner, which has already happened, and he, you know, hasn't stepped into Jake Gardner's role at all. Um, and then you know you're hoping the same can be true of. Lily Grin and Sandin. Uh, Fuldman, you want to, I guess, touch on Dermot a little bit and his progression or lack thereof thus far? Yeah, uh, it's hard to evaluate how Dermot was used this year for me. For the longest time, Mike Babcock put him in a very nice, cozy, warm blanket of soft third-pair usage with him and Igor Ozaganov, whose name I have pronounced at least five different ways, all of which I'm sure are wrong. Anyway... Uh, but, like, Dermot would dominate in these third-pair minutes where he was used very comfortably and very offensively. This year, he seemed to be used that way less, and the results were not that great. And so, while I'm still an advocate of we probably need to find out what we have in him, I think there is a point there. It's like, okay, he hasn't shown us a whole lot lately to make us think that when the degree of difficulty gets turned up, he's going to deliver. He can still get better. He's not, you know, that old or anything. But there is a problem. Like, this defense group is not great. Or put another way, and I know Jake Gardner is apparently not having the greatest of years in Carolina. But, like, if you give me back Jake Gardner from two years ago, I think he's the best defenseman on the team. That's honestly my assessment, and I'm explicitly including Riley in that right now. And... That's not a great sign for a contender, I don't think, because I think Jake Gardner is a 2-3. So, I, I, you know, I do have concerns about this, uh, about the defensive execution and the lack thereof. And Travis Dermott doesn't look to me like he's close to solving them right now. Yeah, no, that's, that's I think, the reality of it. Um, for what it's worth, Gardner does have a, a pretty highly positive relative to teammate uh, or teammate-adjusted Corsi. So I, I don't know. I, I, do you know what part of the game he's been like struggling with in Carolina, or is it just like? I'm going off accounts from people who describe them. I see. So like I could be way off on that one. It's pure hearsay. Yeah, I I, I won't stand for any Jake Gardner slander on this podcast. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Aaron Justin Richards. We we do we do obviously miss him, right? Like, as good as Riley was last year. Um, and, if, you know, a lot of it was, a lot of his value, quote-unquote, was point scoring. And I think all of us kind of agree that, like, you know, d- defenseman points just do not matter. Points really don't matter in general. They're not, they're, we have better methods than points. So, you know, it's, it's you can make the argument that we, we lost our best defenseman, right? And one of our best forwards in, in Nazem Kadri. So, to some extent, the, the slide that we've experienced is not unexpected. But, obviously, um, Babcock paid with a job for it so <laughs> that's oh, life yeah yeah so here we are uh yeah I, I mean i think that maybe that's kind of the the best way to put a cap on this mm-hmm. because things were so ugly for the last month in every respect and 
frankly, they were disproportionately ugly. Like, this team is not that bad. I just don't believe it mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the last month. And now that we've seemed to be showing some signs of recovering from that, I think it can be easy to forget that we still have the problems that we had before, back when we were debating, okay, is this team really going to contend or not? You know, for the last month, we've suddenly been like, is this team really going to finish in the bottom 10? And so I think if things keep rolling a little bit, we can stop having that conversation, I hope. God, I hope so. Yeah. But like all those problems that we had, like, they're still there. And Sheldon Keefe is not going to fix them by magic. And I don't know that all of them are totally fixable because, again, I don't think Mike Babcock was at fault for how few good defensive defensemen he has or how few good defensive forwards he has. Yes. So The results yeah. can get better, and the Leafs would still be a, a flawed team that, you know, might miss the playoffs, given how bad the start is, or might make the playoffs and bow out unceremoniously in the first round. There's a happy, yeah. happy thought. Yeah, we we, we, we had we were this, gonna like, try to end optimistically, and we just sort of cycled around, and we were like, "But really, <laughs> into being Leafs fans? Exactly. Yes, you did." <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah, I guess we we can't we can't just like the Leafs, we're a leopard. We can't change our spots. Okay, here's a happy thought. The next back to back is against Buffalo, and I, if I'm not mistaken, the second half is at home. It is. So there isn't decent chance that they could win the second half of the back-to-back. There's oh, a happy, can get cheery a win. thing to think forward to. Is such a thing even possible? Winning the second half of a back-to-back? I just <laughs> assumed that was already a loss. <laughs> it's like well, you, you start the year with like 15 losses from just the second half of back-to-backs. Yeah, that's just life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, that probably is a good note to uh, wrap up on. Uh, Katya, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we all work for the same site, so I guess the stuff you have to plug is the same stuff I'm going to plug right now. But um, you should read all of Katya's stuff at pensionplanpuppets.com. Um, she is the most prolific Leafs writer there is right now, both in terms of quantity and quality. Um, every day, every other day, you know, you read something from her and you, you learn a lot. And certainly, you know, if you listen to this podcast for a while, you know that a lot of what Fullman and I say, it's informed by talking to her and informed by, by reading her stuff. So definitely... Check all that stuff out and uh, the whole band at PPP um, with our Leafs coverage and Marley's coverage and women's hockey as well. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, myself and Fulman. And actually, before I plug ours, Katya, what's your Twitter? Oh, it's it's just me, just my name, just my name on Twitter. Don't follow my Twitter, people. You'll 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 be tootling along. I'll say something funny about hockey, and then all of a sudden, I'll post some god awful music, and you'll be upset. But <laughs> I also do this, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so. Fulman, your music taste is quite good. You you mentioned yesterday what you're you're a fan of Seven Nation Army, right? That's your favorite song. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> look, it was one good riff. I did not realize when I first heard it, I would be hearing it everywhere forever for twenty years. So, anyways, yeah, you can follow myself and Fulman. <laughs> On Twitter at RVNATFoolman. Uh, you can catch all of our stuff there. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>